I wanted to highlight a couple of these um, verses here. Jesus says, remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. He didn't say, as you, re, re, as you um, obey the commandments, he says, as you obey my commandments. Do you remember the two commandments that Jesus gave us? It wasn't, uh, it was based on the 10, but, but he reduces them to two. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, uh, and soul, and, or strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And now it's like he's redefining it again. I love, I love Jesus. Just when you think you get it figured out, he changes. And um, so, so this, is, this is where he goes then. I have said these things to you so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will be overflowing. This is my commandment. Oh, so now there's not two, there's one. This is my commandment. Love one another in the same way I have loved you. Amen. <laughs> so we began this series uh, on this particular um, portion of Scripture last week. And the theme was remain in Jesus. Remain in Jesus. Today we're going to look at remain in Jesus' love. But the way it begins here, it kind of um, reiterates what we looked at last week. Remain in me. Remain in Jesus. I don't know if you have ever noticed. Um, I, I don't watch this show, The Bachelor, but it's, you know, in the news all the time. And I, I was just struck one day um, about how many bachelors are still bachelors. <laughs> I mean, I thought the point of the show was to marry off the bachelor. But I, I googled it, and out of the first 21 seasons, it said that there were three marriages still intact. And, you know, then I realized that that was from like 2014, so the, then I went to another article. It said after 25 seasons of The Bachelor. First of all, can you imagine that? We've had The Bachelor for 25 seasons. <laughs> I mean, that says something about our culture that I'm not sure I want us to, you know, replicate. So after 25 seasons, five couples have remained married. So, hey, we're up to 20% now. I mean, you have a better chance of remaining married if you don't go on The Bachelor. <laughs> Then if you do, at least if you don't go on The Bachelor, you've got a 50% chance. So remain in me. But do we know how to remain? I mean, do we know how to remain in relationships? Do we know how to remain in marriages? In, do we know how to remain in auto insurance? <laughs> what about restaurants? I mean, one bad experience in a restaurant is like, I'm done with this place. Jesus said, remain in me as I remain in you. It didn't say, if you remain in me, then I will remain in you. It's not a conditional statement. It's because Jesus remains in you, therefore, he calls us to remain in him. 
Jesus remains in you. Think about that. Jesus is with you. Jesus is with you by the power of his Holy Spirit. When you were baptized, whether you remember it or not, some of you were baptized, most of you baptized as adults, some of you were baptized, um, I'm sorry, as infants, some of you were baptized as adults. Doesn't matter. When you were baptized, the Holy Spirit entered into you. You received the Holy Spirit. And that is how Jesus remains present with you. Jesus continues to be with us through his Spirit. In John's Gospel, that's what he says repeatedly, that he's leaving with us his helper, his counselor, his advocate, his paraclete, his Spirit. So Jesus remains in you through his Holy Spirit. And Jesus remains in you even if you don't feel it. I mean, as a pastor, those were some of the worst words that I would hear when I would be involved in marriage counseling. I just don't feel in love with this person anymore. And, you know, I would want to scream, it's not a feeling. (laughs) And thankfully, Jesus gets it, right? I mean, he's not in it for the, I mean, he may be in it for the feelings, but he's committed to us. And with some of the stuff that we have done, that's pretty amazing to know that Jesus is that committed to us. Jesus says that he will remain with you. He will remain with you. Jesus remains with us even if we don't want him hanging around us. (laughs) You know, when I was younger... I have an older brother that I used to idolize. I mean, he was like this major athlete, and he would run cross-country, and he played basketball. He was an amazing basketball player. He was tall, and he was big, and he was powerful. And I remember thinking, oh, how I'd like to be like my brother. And I took every chance that I could to hang out with him. And when we were younger... He was okay with that. But then once he got into high school, it was like, yeah, I don't want you hanging around me, kid. Get out of here. Well, that's how we can be sometimes with God. Uh, Jesus, just, you know, I know you're with me. Just leave. Just, you know, give me a break, okay? And what Jesus says is, I'm with you like glue. (laughs) Where you go, I will go. So, what Jesus is telling us is that he will remain in us and that he wants us to remain in him because he will remain in us. I was ready to give up on my beloved Minnesota Vikings. I mean, they went 7-9 and nine last year. They have spent some of the most money to get some of the best players, and 7-9, and nine, not even 500. I mean, it was pathetic. It was the last two games, it was like they didn't even care. They had just given up. They didn't play. 
And so I was like, okay, I'm done. My, my son-in-law keeps telling me, hey, you get tired of the Vikings, come on over to Seattle. We'd love to have you. And, and so I, I was done. And then, and then the Vikings did something really bizarre, very strange. They, they told me last weekend that they are still committed to me that they wanted to remain with me and they wanted me to remain with them. They wanted me to love them yet. And do you know how they showed that? By drafting in the first round a left tackle. <laughs> I mean, if that doesn't speak love, I don't know what does. <laughs> I mean, that's protection for your quarterback. The blind side. And, and so... You know, they've got me pulled back. You know, it's like, well, maybe this might be the year that we go to the Super Bowl. I mean, after all, they did focus on the offense this year, something we've been waiting for them to do for over a decade. Remain in me. And we'll draft you a left tackle. Not a defensive player, an offensive player. And through this relationship, we might even make it to the Super Bowl. Well, if that is the Minnesota Vikings' attempt to keep me in relationship with them, think of what the Father does to keep you in relationship with His Son. You see, Jesus is committed to having a relationship with you. He loves you. He will remain with you. He will abide in you by His Holy Spirit. When you run away, He will pursue you. When you don't want Him to hang out, He'll hang out with you. Now Jesus is simply asking, will you remain in his love? Will you remain in that love? So how do we remain in Jesus' love? How, how do we do that? Well, commandments by loving God, by loving our neighbor, by loving one another as Christ has loved us, those are the answers that Jesus gives us when he talks about his commandments. So how do we love people that are different from us? How do we love people that might not even agree with us? How do we love people that don't want to love us? I mean, it's easy to love when you are loved, to just simply love back, right? But what if someone doesn't love you back? Can you love them? My internship year, I was assigned to an inner city ministry in Kansas City, Missouri, on the Missouri side. And uh, it was called Metropolitan Lutheran Ministries. And uh, Patty and I lived in the inner city in a low-income, mixed-raced neighborhood. 
and um, it was a great big old mansion, old house that had been cut up into three apartments. The first level, the second level, the third level was up in the attic area. That was a smaller apartment. We were on the second level. And this was a whole new experience for this farm boy from northern Iowa who had grown up in an all-Caucasian town. I think the first person of color I saw was when I was 12 or 13 years of age. So this was a whole different experience for me. It was like a cultural immersion. And the question I think that, that the seminary had for me, because they put me there, was would this kid be able to love this community? I mean, we know he can love a bunch of farmers, but can he love the people in this inner city? And so I tell you that sometimes it was easy to love, and sometimes it was really difficult to love. The family that lived below us was a biracial family. They had three little kids, sweet kids. And um, I remember um, the husband, well, neither of them ever went to work. Um, But he seemed to have a pretty thriving business because people would drive up, park in front of the house, go up to his door, knock on the door, and and then people would purchase things from him in little brown bags. Don't know exactly what it was. But, uh, but that was, I think that was his job. That was his business. And um, so I, I remember uh, one night, a lot of racket going in the hallway. So I opened up our door, and uh, he was struggling with another guy, and there was a gun pulled. <laughs> and all, all I remember was my neighbor said, Steve, get back in your apartment. And you never saw this guy run so fast in your life as me going back into that apartment. And yet, there was a relationship forming with this family because, you know, they watched out for us. They took care of us. And the place that I worked at was an amazing place. Um, The people there were amazing. I I remember Joe Maddox. Joe was this (coughs) African-American guy who who was our housing counselor, so that if somebody in the community had gone bad on their mortgage, they could connect with Joe, and he would talk. He knew all the banks in town. Of course, this, this was the time before there was just one bank, um, like we have now, but, you know, lots of smaller banks, and uh, he knew all the bankers. And so when people truly made an effort to get right with their mortgage, he could call the bank and, and the bank would re, I mean, normally it'd go into foreclosure. No, they'd stop that. And they'd tack on the, the missing payments to the end of the mortgage. You know, they'd figure out a way to pay the penalties. And uh, in a way they go, they get their house back. Joe did wonders. I mean, so many people who would have lost houses back then uh, were saved because, because of Joe's work. Edith was this phenomenal woman. She was a grandmother, uh, but she had raised nine children. And she she was a single mom, so nine children without a husband, 
um, with no job, so she lived on food stamps. And uh, what she did was she showed these young moms that would come into her classes how to budget, how you could feed nine children with food stamps. <laughs> she was an amazing teacher. And Joe, Edith, the, you know, uh, the, the, whole, the whole team, there's probably 25, 30 staff members at this place. The whole team, what you saw was this tremendous amount of love. And they cared about us, they cared about their neighborhood, they cared about their communities. And, and so, one of the gifts that I learned was that I could love when it was easy, like with Joe and Edith, and I could love when it was difficult, like our neighbors down below. Sometimes loving was easy when I worked at the food bank because people would come and receive food and it was like a life-giving gift. I mean, this is what would provide for them for the remainder of the week before their next paycheck. And you saw the, 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 the hope in their eyes. And then I remember after working the food bank, walking home for lunch, we always did it on Wednesday mornings, and I remember walking home for lunch uh, to the house on 32nd Street in Campbell in the inner city. And, um, and I remember uh, going by this liquor store that was on my way home and seeing one of the guys that we had given food to selling his food at the liquor store and going in to buy liquor. Sometimes it was hard to love. But what Jesus is telling us is that we are to love not like we would want to love, not like we think people deserve to be loved. We are to love like Jesus loved. We are called to love, kind of like the love that we see in this beautiful story in our Old Testament in the book of Ruth. Ruth is important because of her relationship with her mother-in-law, Naomi. Naomi and her husband moved to Moab from Israel, and while in, while in Moab, um, they had two sons who married Moabite women, and so this extended family planted in Moab. And over time, things happened. The patriarch of the family died, and then um, both of the sons um, that are married to the Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah, both of their husbands die. After a period of grief, Naomi tells her daughters, it is time for you to go home to your families. I'm moving back to Israel to be near my family, and you go back to your families here in Moab. You have been faithful to me, you have cared for me, and I am releasing you of that responsibility today. Orpah is crying, kisses her, goes home to be with her family in Moab. But Ruth, crying, won't leave Naomi's side. 
She can't because of the profound love that she has experienced. And she can't imagine an end to that love. In chapter 1 of Ruth's uh, book, uh, verses 16 and 17, this is what Ruth says to Naomi. But Ruth replied, Don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. Ruth is an amazing story of loving back. But what I find amazing in this story is the way that God has loved Ruth from the very beginning. Who gave Ruth life? I mean, she was born into a Moabite family, right? But it was God who gave her life. God is the one who created her. And not only did God create her, but God brought this amazing family from Israel into her life that continued to show her God's love. And because of that love, when it was time to separate, to be released, she didn't want to go. Because the love that she had experienced from Naomi and from Naomi's God was nothing like she had ever experienced before. And she didn't want to lose that. God remains in Ruth's life, just as God had been there in the beginning. Not only did he create her, not only did he give her Naomi's family, but God also provided for her with food and shelter when she needed it on her journey to Israel. God provided a second husband for her in the name of Boaz. And God did all of this not just for Ruth, but God did this for Israel. God did this for the very foundation of who we are today as, as the heirs of this gift of Israel as followers of the Messiah, Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 5 and the beginning of verse 6, this is one of the most fascinating pieces of Scripture that you'll want to read. It's called the genealogy. Well, you may not think it's fascinating, but I think it's fascinating because of what we learn in this genealogy. Listen to verse 5 and the first part of verse 6. Salmon, now there's a name for a, for a young newborn uh, boy. You can name him Salmon, S-A-L-M-O-N, just like the fish we eat. That was a popular name. And so Salmon, it says, was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. <laughs> Remember Rahab, the Gentile, the prostitute? All right, so Boaz comes from a broken family. Let's hear it for broken families. And then it says this, 
Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Another broken family. Let's hear it for broken families. God does amazing things with them. And then it says, Jesse was the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon, and then it goes on from there. Now, I find that fascinating because what it says is that the story of Israel is built upon the Jews and the Gentiles. That what Jesus was talking about was that it would begin with the Jews and then move into the Gentiles. And so what we are celebrating in this gift of love is the foundation that God gives us through the story of Ruth. Jesus says that he will remain with you, that he is a loving God committed to you, and that he has given Jesus to demonstrate this love for you. And so Jesus simply asks us to remain in that love. And then Jesus says this, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Today, Jesus says, you, yes, you are my friends. You are my friends. There is no greater love. What Jesus is alluding to is that he will lay down his life for his friends. That he will lay it down, that he will be crucified, that he will be raised again from the dead and given new life. In John chapter 10, we are reminded of that. If you remember from uh, a few weeks ago, when we did the Good Shepherd um, text, we read this in verse, uh, chapter 10 of John, uh, verse 17. The Father loves me because I sacrifice, I give my life up so that I might take it back again. No one can take my life from me. I give it voluntarily. I give it on my own. For I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again. For this is what my Father has commanded of me. Jesus says there is no greater love than this. Love at times will not only be easy or difficult, but sometimes love, remaining in Jesus' kind of love, will require sacrifice. We have uh, two daughters who are now mothers, and it's a wonderful thing to watch them. Um, we, we think that both moms and dads of our kids, our grandkids, are way better than we ever were as parents. And um, those of you who are grandparents, if you can agree with me, let's amen to that one. Um, but one of the things that, um, that happens is, you know, we'll comment about how, how we admire their parenting, about how good they are, and, and they will tell us that how, um, how they don't feel like they have been very good parents. Like, you know, they have not done as much as they could. And I, as I thought about that, I thought, you know, that is sacrificial love. 
when you're willing to give all that you can give and to know that there's even more that you could give. That's sacrificial love. That's not satisfactory love. Satisfactory love is, well, I did my best. Sacrificial love is, I've given my all, and I could have given more. There's, um, there's a powerful point in the movie Schindler's List, if any of you remember watching that movie, um, where Schindler is being celebrated and thanked by all the Jews that he has, sa- been, that he has helped to save uh, from the Holocaust. And as they're trying to thank him, he's crying. And he said, I could have done more. He said, I could have sold my car. I could have sold a ring. I could have I done more. That's sacrificial love. Jesus says, sometimes to remain with me in my love will be sacrificial love. And because of that, Jesus calls you a friend. There's another TV show that's kind of ruined a part of our life together. That's that old show called Friends. I mean, that is really not about friends. (laughs) That's about acquaintances that hang out together all the time and don't grow. (laughs) True friends, what Jesus is talking about, are people that are loved. You see, literally, that's the word that Jesus uses. He says, today you are my loved ones. We translate it as friends, but literally it's philoi, which is a Greek word for, for love. It's the city of brotherly love, Philly, Philadelphia. Uh, that, that word uh, philoi comes from the word philia, which means love. And so Jesus is saying, those of you who are willing to live sacrificial loving lives, you are my loved ones because you know what love is all about. You know what love means. Love means that Jesus died for us and he calls us to do the same. He says, remain in my love as I remain in you. So love when it's easy, and love when it's difficult, and love when it requires sacrifice. And remember, no matter what, Jesus loves you and remains with you in the Father's love. Amen.